In this portion of today's morning show, we are talking about a fascinating play that is about to open at Carthage College. I myself am very, very excited to see this play called FML, How Carson McCullers Saved My Life, a play by Sarah Gubbins and a play that is being directed by uh, a guest of Carthage's theater department, uh, Samantha Martinson, uh, who is based in Milwaukee. And uh, she has uh, come down to direct this production at the invitation of, uh, of Professor Herschel Kruger, who also joins us uh, in the morning show to talk about the uh, theater department's selection of this play to be part of its season and uh, the powerful themes that, uh, that are set forth uh, in this play in which we follow the uh, exploits of a, of a high school junior uh, named Joe as she navigates a, a really difficult and complicated road, coming to terms with who she is, with her feelings for another student, and, uh, and the way in which uh, a novel assigned in an English class ends up having a very, very powerful influence upon her uh, and helps her sustain herself through uh, some very, very uh, rocky times uh, when she comes under fire uh, for her own sexual orientation. It's a powerful and timely play, and uh, I'm very, very happy that we can speak today for the next few minutes with Herschel Kruger and guest director Samantha Martinson about it. We welcome both of you to The Morning Show. Morning, Greg. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you all here. Uh, Professor Kruger, maybe we could start by just having you explain a little bit about Samantha's presence at Carthage right now as a a guest director and how often does it happen that the theater department will bring in somebody uh, to serve in this capacity? Absolutely. So we've been um, fortunate to um, have the location that we have so we have access to directors in milwaukee and chicago and when we were looking at this play we wanted to make sure we had the right person to direct the play and we compiled a list and we spoke to different people that we knew and actually samantha's name came up a couple different times from from different people and um we had called and interviewed some people and I think after my initial discussion with Samantha, I, was, I, I felt really great about things, and um, we discussed it as a department, and Samantha and I talked again, and it just seemed like a great fit. Mm. And the rest is history. Samantha Martinson, <laughs> uh, since this is your first uh, visit to the morning show, I think it would be interesting for us to learn a little bit about you uh, personally in terms of where you come from uh, specifically, and also maybe uh, a word or two about uh, your own sort of theatrical journey professionally. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually uh, hail from Belvedere, Illinois. So This story taking place in LaGrange, Illinois, feels very timely um, as a suburb and a small town in in the state. But I have been in Milwaukee for over a decade now. Um, I went to school here, and I ended up staying because I just love the community, and I love the art scene and what it offers. It's such a unique place where really thought-provoking work happens, um, and the community is so supportive of the arts. So it seems like a right fit for me. Um, and my partner also is from here. So we um, have family close by, which is really fantastic. 
Um, but I started in the theater in the education realm. Um, I am a certified educator as well, and then I moved into acting, um, and then I found my home in directing, honestly, um, because I think it combines all of those facets of my life um, that allow me to help shape and cultivate the next generation of artists, which I think is so significant when we think about the sustainability and where um, the future of theater lands. So it feels like a real privilege to be able to work with young professionals um, in that capacity. Hmm. How often do you find yourself accepting an invitation like the one that was extended by Carthage, by Professor Kruger, to uh, to go to a college or, or other type of school as a guest director? Is this a, a common sort of gig for you? And what's it feel like? Um, this is my second uh, experience in a university setting. So I feel really fortunate um, that I have advocates and, and mentors in the field who recommended me for the piece. Um, I And I've fallen really deeply in love with it because of those components of being able to work with uh, youth, uh, young adults who are finding themselves and working out all of the kinks of what it means to be an actor, right? They're learning the professionalism, the skills, and it's really, I think, important to bring in guest artists and guest directors because they offer a connection into the current field within the city, so it helps kind of bridge and keep artists here. Um, that's, you know, I think one of the goals is to keep the artists that you've cultivated here or help them be successful elsewhere. Um, so it's really, it's been a, a real privilege to be able to do that. Very good. Professor Kruger, I briefly summarized what this play is about, and we'll talk about it in greater uh, detail, of course, as the interview proceeds. But maybe you could say a word about the selection of this play to be part of this current season and what you recall in terms of discussions about it. And are those kind of choices typically made collaboratively by the whole theater faculty, or is it like some situations I've heard of where uh, this is Herschel's play and this is Neil's play and this and so on? Yeah, there, there is part of that, that each director is going to advocate for something that... Um, you know, is near and dear to them. I have a list of like my top five shows I'd like to direct. Mm. And actually tonight we're announcing next year's season, but none of my top five shows that I want to direct will be in next year's season. Mm. Um, so we we have um, a four-year cycle of plays that, that we do. And... Um, the the spring slot this the spring semester the first slot is usually a contemporary work and we want it to be something um, timely um, that speaks to important social um, topics and illustrates um, some important values that that we want to communicate so um, it doesn't mean the play has to be set in contemporary time last year we did the revolutionist which mm. is a new play by lauren gunderson but it's set back during the times of the french revolution and next year once we announce tonight um is a contemporary play but it's a period piece now now uh, how carson mccullough saved my life is is a newer play it's a contemporary play but the issue is 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 very timely and i think very important and it gives um a voice to um I think a lot of our students and um, I think a lot of people in the community 
um, will will be very interested in in seeing this play, and um, I, I I think it'll resonate with with a lot of people. Very good. Uh, before we talk about the play, could we talk about the playwright and uh, whatever you know about uh, about her? Sarah, is it Gubbins? Mm-hmm. Sam, do you want to take that one? I mean, uh, this is the sure. only play of hers I've read, um, so I'll, I'll defer. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I know of Sarah Gubbins, I haven't done a full deep dive, nor have I spoken to her, but... Um, she grew up in LaGrange, Illinois, and she um, came out as gay much later in life. Um, but she does state that it is not on an autobiographical story, um, that this play is shaped around experiences. But she did mention um, in an interview once that she fe- feels like it connects with teens of today, which is not the experience that she had growing up. Um, so she mentioned that she didn't realize she was gay much into her um, later adult life. Um, and she felt like the teens of today are astonishingly brave and resilient um, and can be so much more of themselves, even though there are challenges to that. Um, I would say that when uh, Sarah Gubbins and I were both growing up. Um, you didn't even talk about being gay. It wasn't even mentioned, right? It was, you know, living in this don't ask, don't tell world. Um, you found a way to morph, even if everyone knew you didn't talk about it. Mm. And so I think we have this ability to explore characters who can be authentically themselves and figuring out their identity and embracing their voice um, at a younger age. Um, and pushing through some of those challenges that we face in life. So in other words, there is quite a bit less closeting today, not that being out of the closet uh, or or being fully open, and uh, not that that isn't an easy road. I mean, and in certain locales, it can be still tremendously difficult and painful, but it is a very different world than, than just a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today with uh, uh, Professor Herschel Kruger, who is uh, on the theater faculty at Carthage. By the way, are you the chair right now? I'm still chair. So chair of the theater department. And also with us uh, over the telephone is Milwaukee-based theatrical director Samantha Martinson, who has been engaged by Carthage's theater department to uh, direct... uh, a, a play that is about to open on the 24th of February called FML, How Carson McCullers Saved My Life by Chicago-based uh, uh, playwright Sarah Gubbins. Uh, Samantha, let's have you summarize, if you would, the essential plot points of of this play, uh, which, by the way, is uh, features a rather modestly-sized cast which uh, intrigues me a lot. As I think back, some of my favorite plays are plays of modest dimensions because so often they really pack a huge punch. Uh, So tell us more about this play. Yeah, I will do my best to try and summarize this play because it's very complex um, in the way that it's arranged. So it is, in essence, an autobiographical graphic novel um, where the framework feels like a play within a play in a sense, but doesn't um, 
still that normal trope that you might see of a play within a play. Um, it's the coming-of-age story of a, a gay um, female girl, um, Joe is her name, um, and her attending Catholic school in her junior year. And I think it's her struggle with her identity, learning how to fit in and express herself, and finding hope in the challenges and the moments of deep friendship and mentorship with those who really see her. So it, we see elements of her graphic novel um, unfolding as the play is happening um, and her breaking the fourth wall to have conversations with the audience and then shifting back into the experiences that she has had um, throughout her school year. Mm. Just so I understand, are you saying that we <laughs> visually see excerpts from this graphic novel that she is constructing a, a, about her own life that we as the audience see visual representation of that on the stage? Yeah, we do. We've worked with a an illustrator um, who has helped put together some of those pieces. Her name's Mariah Anderson, and she um, we worked collaboratively with the design team um, to really meld those into the whole set um, design as well. Um, and so you'll see moments of her graphic novel pop up on stage and you'll see the illustrations that Joe has created that represent the, the world that she is living in. Very good. I want to hear more about that yeah. and how that's being uh, accomplished. That, that sounds like a fascinating element. Uh, if I understand correctly, and I've read just uh, uh, a brief excerpt from the play, and it, it looks really promising. I am excited to see this. Uh, although we're talking about a play set in a Catholic school, my understanding is that there are really just several students that we actually directly meet uh, because it's just a cast of five. And yet, yeah. in a sense, other voices of other students, I think, are somehow present in the mix. Do I have that right? Am I reading the script correctly? <laughs> Yes, you are. Yeah. Um, so I think that the script is built in a way in which we never see or um, put a face to the individuals who are bullying or um, creating this this other world. So we meet the people that are closest to Joe that have, I think, those um, deep heartfelt relationships that move and drive her through her life. Um, and then we have these other characters that we see through text message conversations um, projected on the screen um, on the stage, as well as empty seats that create an illusion. So our actors are, um, you know, engaging with uh, an imaginary person, <laughs> so to speak, um, in this space with them. Um, and then any time that there ha is extreme bullying, there's a, a violent um attack on Joe, um, we see only hooded figures or images of hooded figures. And I think that's actually a really important um, element that Sarah puts into the script because it really could be anyone, right? If we don't define the face of someone, the audience is left to imagine who might that person be. And it really could be anyone instead of us um, deciding who looks like a bully, who acts like a bully, who is that. Right, we create the image within our own frame as an audience member. Wow, that's 
I, I had not really stopped to think about that, but I, I, I think you're you're absolutely right that we our tendency is to, in a sense, distance ourselves from those kind of villains, those kind of bullies. Yeah. That bullies are those other people that do these terrible things, and when, in a sense, that the specifics of that are left blank. Uh, it it reinforces the fact that bullies come in all shapes and sizes, and and sometimes somebody very much like us, and sometimes it perhaps even is us. But uh, yeah. if 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 Sarah Gubbins, the playwright, had filled in every detail, there would be in a sense something confining about that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So talk about these. Uh, these central characters whom we really do get to meet and know in a very intimate way through the course of the play. Let's learn more about the character, first of all, of Joe, J-O, the uh, the main character of the play. Yeah, Joe is a junior in high school, um, and she is incredibly smart and creative and thoughtful, um, and it was really important to me that in casting, I didn't want to fit any specific trope of uh, a lesbian, you know, a lesbian within the gay community, right? Like, there, that's not the only defining component of a person. And so it was really important to me that I wasn't um, creating that framework that then the audience is like, this is what it means to be gay and to be bullied. Right, a person who always looks like this is always going to be bullied. Um, and she also, I think, is while she's smart and creative and thoughtful, feels so much deeper um, and feels perpetually like the listener um, and an outsider and alone and misunderstood in some capacities um, and very aware. Right. She talks about how she has protected herself and created this shield and understanding of what she can and can't do in order to navigate through the world. So she's, you know, empathetic, but also very complex. Right. When you can feel those types of emotions, um, it creates, I think, a deeper sense of understanding the world and also trying to find your place in it. Mm. Well said. Let's talk next about Joe's best friend, a student named Mickey. And uh, I especially am curious to hear you describe the way in which uh, they are very similar in some respects, and yet uh, a couple of striking differences that I see between those two characters. Absolutely. So Mickey is, we've had a lot of conversations, the actor who is playing Mickey, um, about who he is as a person, um, as well as with the costume designer to try and really figure out, you know, what's the best way to represent this person. Um, and I think at the end of the day, Mickey wears a lot of hats. <laughs> mm. um, I think he's incredibly protective and loyal. He is so connected to the people that he deeply cares about, which is few and far between. Um, so his family life is very different than Joe's, um, which I think defines and helps shape who he is as a person. Um, he has a very large family. Um, oftentimes he goes under the radar. He is also gay. Um, 
the character um, identifies as gay. And so I think he is more vocal and wants to make change and wants to push through and wants to protest, right? <laughs> wants to, you know, show everybody um, and make a big scene about things, even if that's not how he thinks it comes across. So I think sometimes he, he acts fast and then um, has to take perspective, right? So he tries to, I would say, solve situations that aren't his to solve. Um mm-hmm. Because he is so loyal and wanting to be a friend. And so I think there are connections and understanding between him and Joe. And there is this bond um, of them being, you know, othered in the school. And it's um, it's that parallel between Carson McCullers, um, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, uh, the two main characters in that story. And then you have Nikki and Joe in um, FML, how Carson McCullers saved my life, so we can see those parallels that Sarah Gobbins um, has created. But at the same time, Nick is, I would say, more of like the advocate who wants to make change and make it boldly um, and often talks about how people are weak-willed, <laughs> um, you know, in, in not wanting to push the buttons. So um, I think that's one of the largest differences, and, and yet there are similarities between him and Joe. Right. It's interesting uh, at the outset of the excerpt that I read, where it just lists the characters and very briefly summarizes them, it says about Mickey, a high school junior, best friends with Joe, also gay. He's over the entire high school thing. And when I read yeah. those words, I immediately <laughs> decided, I don't think I'm going to like Mickey very much, just because that's I find that to be one of the most disagreeable traits of, of, of a young person is being so over, you know, wherever they are in life and just, you know, uh, so anxious to get on to the next thing and, and very dismissive of, uh, of, of the surroundings in which they find themselves and everybody that populates their, wherever they are. Uh, I mean, I just find that kind of distasteful on kind of a personal level. And as I read this excerpt, I was kind of surprised actually by how much I liked Mickey. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's like the way that character is drawn. It's 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 not exactly like the the rougher edges are whitewashed. They're certainly there, but somehow the playwright has constructed the character of Mickey in such a way that uh, he's very engaging and fascinating. And we're so glad that he's part of this mix, and we're so glad he's part of Joe's life. Yeah, and I think that he provides you know the opposite perspective of Emma, right? Who is uh, a new friend of Joe's who she has very ambiguous, <laughs> unidentifiable relationship with, right? There's like question marks all around it. Like, what is this? Who is Emma? How are we connected? Um, and I think there's a scene between Emma and Mickey um, where uh, it's a very heightened, high-stakes moment that I don't uh, want to necessarily give away right now. Um, but and Mickey and Emma are those foils of one another. And I think both of them grow throughout the play. Um, everyone we can see changes some, in some capacity. And so I think Mickey finds himself realizing that he needs to be present in order to experience the current world, right? Like he needs mm. to come back to high school and say, this is where I'm at and this is what we can do versus I don't, you know, I don't even want to be here. I'm going to leave and, you know, I'm never going to think about this place again and say, what can, 
what closure can I have for this time in my life um, as well? So I think he does show some growth and I find him very, um, he's very funny. <laughs> right. Uh, even though he's trying not to be, right? Like he's just so, um, so particular, which I think is, is even a more endearing quality about him. Hmm. There's two other characters that, uh, that we meet in the play. One is relatively crucial, one of the teachers in this school, Ms. Delaney. Uh, and then we also at some point meet Reed's older brother, I'm uh, sorry, Joe's older brother, Reed. Uh, I don't know much at all about him and, and also how significant he is in the, in the story. Can you just talk a moment about Joe's older brother and the role that he plays uh, in his sister's story? I think Reed is a really interesting character because there are very few scenes where you see him. He interacts with different people at different times. And so he has, um, I think, the ability to access and challenge. He asks a lot of questions. Um, he's very inquisitive, but he's also very dismissive. <laughs> he's an older brother. He's a college dropout. He's 24, living at home. Um, kind of, you know, going on his own journey. Uh, and Joe has never really judged him for that, right? She just accepts him for who he is. And they have this sibling bond and frustration. <laughs> you know, there's a larger age gap between them, Joe being a junior in high school, 17, you know, so they have a lot of different life experiences. Um, but Reed is such an advocate of Joe. He, um, at deep down, thinks she's really awesome, right? And mm. so he's always in her room, always, you know, hanging out and, and poking fun at her friends, um, but in a really endearing way. And so I think he builds relationships both with Mickey and Emma um, that allow us to see different parts of them. And he, I think, challenges that status quo of, you know, the high school drama. He's like, well, let's, let's investigate that, you know, but in a very brotherly way, not in a parent, a parental way. Right. So he, I think creates a new access point for us to see someone who's a little bit more mature and yet isn't, doesn't have their life fully together. Um, so we know he's still growing and learning as well. Mm, yes. I like that. Yeah. A very much a work in process and, yeah. and a, very much a diamond in the rough in a sense. And then yeah. there is this very intriguing character of, of Ms. Delaney. She is the English teacher. She is new on the scene. And, uh, and I just love this scene in which the students are kind of grappling with the reality of this exacting new teacher and what she is going to be demanding from them. Uh, and there's also, uh, in a sense, a bit of intriguing mystery that surrounds her. Tell us more about this character of Ms. Delaney. Yeah, I love Ms. Delaney. Um, a lot of the times that we see her on stage, she's actually reading passages from the book. Hmm. Um, so she will be reading from The Heart of a Lonely Hunter. So excerpts of the book are woven throughout the play itself. And so you'll see connection scenes where Joe is describing her life and Ms. Delaney is reading the novel. And they're not necessarily engaging with one another on stage, um, in dialogue, but they're there together and they have this connection. Um, and I think it's because Ms. Delaney sees herself in Joe. Um, 
as a young high school person. So Ms. Delaney talks about her personal life and how she has struggled. But I think one of the most beautiful things about Ms. Delaney is that while she is so intense and challenging and, you know, she's going to uh, push the students to do more and do better because she believes in them. Um, she also has this deep empathetic side to her that, that there's hope even when life is challenging, um, that it can get better. And mm. she kind of, I think, really reinforces that to Joe and leaves her with these nuggets of information that Joe may not understand right now, but may think about five years from now or three years from now or 10 years from now and think, wow, that conversation really did impact me, right? That, that moment in which this teacher saw me for who I was um, and encouraged me to be myself and find myself in, in my words uh, as a writer, as an illustrator, um, that changed my trajectory. So I think it, she plays that powerful teacher role of when you can really have a deep influence on the students that you're teaching and, and working with. Hmm. And how often that happens uh, in an English classroom and in an yeah. English class. I mean, not exclusively by any means, uh, but but certainly that is an arena in which some really powerful uh, connections like you are describing uh, are apt to occur. Yeah. And we did, uh, during our table work, um, I asked all of the actors themselves, you know, who is a teacher that influenced you? Who is someone that when you think about the, the best teacher moment and why? What was it about that person that you felt like you learned the most, you understood yourself, you were engaged, you know, thinking about those moments of who has had an impact on you, I think influences the way that we um, perform on stage. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on The Morning Show with Samantha Martinson, who is the guest director brought in by the theater department at Carthage College to direct their production of the play FML, How Carson McCullers Saved My Life by Sarah Gubbins. Uh, uh, Dr. Herschel Cougar is with us as well, chair of the theater department at Carthage. By the way, Samantha Martinson, uh, we keep announcing the title of the play. The time has come to explain to our listeners, uh, because I needed it explained to me, uh, those curious first three letters that precede the otherwise the, the rest of the title, FML, colon, How Carson McCullers Saved My Life. And we have to explain this very carefully, of course. Sure. <laughs> so FML is an acronym. <laughs> it's a slang uh, phrase that you might see in a lot of text messages or um, in, um, in some writing. And F stands for the swear word that begins with an F. <laughs> it's a and we don't mean fooey. Yes, right. <laughs> um, and then M stands for my, and then L stands for life. So F, my, life. Right. Um, and the reason I wanted to ask you about it is, is I mean, first of all, people might wonder, as I did when they saw the poster, what, what does that mean? Is that some some kind of like theatrical company that's presenting this or something. I just had absolutely no idea. Uh, but it seems to me that it's really important because it says something about these characters and what they're experiencing. 
tell us what you think that those three letters and that sort of the attitude behind them of blank my life, what that has to do with these this play and these characters and what they're experiencing. Sure, that's a good question. Um, I think that it really grounds us back to how this play can be relatable to everyone. <laughs> um, in a sense, I think there are times in our life where everything just feels like chaos, right? Or feels like um, things are up in the air. We don't have a defined sense of understanding. We're really struggling with who we are or where we are or what's the next step? You know, where am I going to be three years from now? You know, you're asked to define goals of where you're going to be in 10 years from now. And you're like, I don't even know because I, I don't know where I'm going to be next month, right? Um, or you're deciding whether to stay with someone because do you see a future with them, right? Or do you, um, is there just personal hardship or just life in general, right? It can get so busy and so messy that I think, Sometimes this is how we all feel, right? Um, and, and that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to feel that way, right? I think that through those tribulations and challenges, we come out on the other side with a different understanding of who we are. We grow as people through, I think, our challenges more than we do oftentimes as someone um, just experiencing everything in such a positive way, right? Everything going our way, the exact way we imagined. I think when we are faced with those difficult moments like Joe is, um, and then in thinking about when someone experiences those challenges, um, extreme bullying or violence or um, a moment in which someone that you love is hurt, everyone, it reverberates across all of the people that are connected to them. So if someone is in an accident, it's not just the person who's recuperating from the accident, um, it's everyone who's connected to that person in their, you know, in their nuclear family, their chosen family, or their family in general, who also is impacted by that. Um, so I think in a sense, it's saying we're all in this together, but there's hope on the other side, because it's not just about how terrible life is in this, you know, phrase, FML, but then it's the colon is saying, and something can save you, right? Like there is hope on the other side of this. Mm. So I think it it plays with that and challenges you to think about how we can find how we can find that that sense of self even after challenges. Mm. A lot to think about there. Profe- I know. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Kruger, uh, I, I wonder if you could say a word about, and I'm sure uh, Samantha might want to to, to chime in here. Uh, on the whole matter of some of the technical challenges of this particular production. For anybody who's had the pleasure of seeing, for instance, Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway, mm-hmm. that is filled with projections of of, of uh, email conversations and, and so on. And uh, we're starting to see that more and more, but it seems like that is used in really intriguing fashion and critically important fashion in this particular play. Talk for a moment about kind of the challenges of doing that well in order to really serve this story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, it's it's just great to have um, Samantha on air with me because uh, everyone could hear how articulate she is and her understanding of this play and how 
um, important I think this this play will be for our audiences and our community. So I just want to thank her uh, again for joining us and, and working with us at Carthage. And, um, you know, I've been involved in some of the pre-production parts of, of this. And as we put together the team, we knew projections were really important. And, and we have uh, a student, Kurt Meinhardt, who's a senior, and this is his thesis. Um, so he's, he's doing all the projections. He's working with our artist. And there's um, projections from the novel, there's projections from text messages, there's titles and other things, and there's multiple surfaces and projectors that we're using um, to help, you know, do the technical thing that's needed, but these are also important elements of storytelling. Um, Maureen Chavez-Kruger is, is doing the set design, and instead of doing something very realistic, um, she found a... Uh, an idea that um, she and Sam agreed on and and the set itself is almost a graphic novel that opens up before us so the back wall and and the main playing area of the stage are like an opened graphic novel and the other projection hmm. elements have that as well so um, text sized boxes or bubble boxes that you see in graphic novels are are all part of that design and the same thing with some of the um, the bold colors and graphics that, that could be used. And then um, Kim Instant is our costume designer and her assistant, Lane Brimehorst. Um, of course, it's a contemporary play, but they're trying to define it in, in time and space. So how can we make each of these characters' identities pop out, and especially the ones who are in this Catholic school where they have to wear mm. uniforms, right? Mm. So how can we learn more about who Joe is or, or who Mickey is, um, Reed, et cetera, um, as, as, and the teacher, as we see them on stage, how do we help, again, with the storytelling? So um, that team is, has been working together since the fall. It's not like, all of a sudden, all right, let's start rehearsal and figure out what we're going to do with the play. So we go back several months um, and even over the summer, we had a, a couple, um, you know, just initial meetings and introductions. And, and of course, we were looking to find the, the artist for us to, to draw the images um, and then to be able to create those digitally and project them um, for the play. Because I, I believe there's over 20, 24 or something images, maybe. I think over 30. There's 30, yeah, okay. Yeah, plus all the text messages and all these other things that yeah. come up. But I think in terms of sketches and drawings. So there's there's just a lot of pre-production work. And, you know, as, as you make choices and you put it all together, it's like, great, now we're in that implementation phase where most of the set is built, most of the costumes have been brought in, uh, purchased or pulled, and, and they're doing fittings and... And so, you know, we're, we're at that final stage where we're ready to get, get, get the play up and um, looking at all of our choices and how is it all coming together. And this is, um, you know, a lot of people um, call it hell week, but I see it more <laughs> as magic week, right, right? where mm -hmm. we're like everything does come together and everything starts to work and it also puts a positive spin on 
on everything, especially if your pre-work is, is good and thoughtful and communicated well, it, it carries through. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to have the play open and to see all of it come to life. Mm. As are uh, many of us uh, who will be in the audience. Um, Samantha, you mentioned something about table work. And of course, uh, uh, anybody who's been involved in theater you know, probably has kind of some notion of that, that uh, scenario of actors and others involved in the production often literally around a table, but certainly having conversations about not only the play, but its, its, uh, its themes and, and, and so on. In this particular case, I should think that, that some of those kind of conversations were particularly important uh, and maybe deeply personal when we come to matters of, of, of personal identity, sexual orientation, making your, finding your place in the world, maybe facing ostracism or, 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 or other uh, painful difficulties. Could you just say a word about what it was like uh, to gather around that table, either li- literally or figuratively, and, uh, and kind of talk about this uh, with your cast and others involved in this production? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, when you're looking at creating... Um, Creating a play, it is all of those elements that Herschel was talking about. It's the designers coming together much earlier that helped then create and shape the world in which the story is being told. And through multiple conversations of, you know, <laughs> talking with me and saying, like, this is what I see, like, this is my hope, you know, in um, talking with Kim and talking uh, about costumes and how Joe is defined but yet not defined by her sexuality how that needs to look different and feel different than Mickey, um, what Reed's personality is, and even down to the type of band T-shirt that Reed would be wearing, right? So having that specificity for each of those characters then helps us when we're having conversations in the room about who these characters are and how um, the actors may or may not relate to them, you know, may have some elements that they're like, I fully understand this. And then some elements where we um, had to really break down and say, well, what, let's talk about Reed, not you as a person, right? So it helps the actors understand that they're stepping away from who they are and they're pretending and um, becoming someone else for this time, right? So it's really helping, I think, them grow as actors. Um, and I think that there are a lot of, there were a lot of personal conversations that we had. Um, and I think something that I, I, um, applaud and, uh, am really happy about for Carthage is that they were very intentional about finding a director who, uh, identifies in the LGBTQ community. Um, so I think that also helped shape the conversations in the room, um, because when you have someone who helps make sure that representation isn't troped, um, that there's depth to each of these characters and who they are, um, not just their identity um, that can be so black and white, we really can see a full spectrum of who everyone is. Mm. Um, and so I definitely am so grateful for that, but I would be grateful either way if it were a different director who... Um, was a part of the community, the queer community. Um, so I, I applaud um, Herschel as well as the entire team of really trying to find the right voices for each of the plays that they, they put on. 
Um, and I think that that impacted the conversations of the moments of intimacy and the moments of violence, right? How can we tell these stories um, where then we still find hope or we're just as confused, right? <laughs> like, what does it mean when, you know, you're, you're like in an awkward position with someone that you have a crush on, but not saying this is, you know, a situation between two women of like, no, let's just talk about this as like people, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think that brings some depth to it. So a lot of those conversations happen at the beginning of our rehearsal and continue to happen when we run the scene and we're discovering more. So the actors will say, I, you know, I'm really struggling with this part. Okay, let's stop and, and rework that scene and find what works for you. Um, so I think it's working with the people that we have in the room and also allowing ourselves to continue to explore beyond the table work days. I think oftentimes um, in the theater, you say, now let's go, we're, we're going to block it, no, nothing's changing, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we got we have to get this done in three weeks. Um, but I, I would say that I have um, a little bit of a softer approach in, in how it all lands. Mm. Well, I have a feeling that approach is uh, going to serve this play and this cast and crew uh, exceedingly well. Uh, uh, again, the play that we're talking about uh, is about to open at uh, at Carthage College uh, on the 24th of mm -hmm. February. Professor Kruger, uh, spell out exactly how many performances there will be and what people need to do if they would like to attend. Absolutely. So we have performances. We have six performances, and we open on uh, February 24th, and we run two weekends. So we have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the first weekend, and the Friday and Saturday shows are at 7.30, and Sunday, uh, February 26th, will be at 3 o'clock p.m. And the following weekend is March 2 through 4, Thursday through Saturday night, and all those performances are at 7.30. People can get tickets by calling the box office at 262-551-6661. You can go to carthage.edu slash arts slash box office slash get tickets. That's a long one. Or you can mm -hmm. email the Office of Ensemble and, and Events at oee at carthage.edu. So lots of ways to do it. You can also get tickets at the door. And um, we are, you know, looking forward to having um, big audiences for this, um, both from our Carthage community and the community of Kenosha, Racine, and southeastern Wisconsin. We hope to see everyone there. Very good. Again, the play FML, How Carson McCullers Saved My Life by Sarah Gubbins and uh, the guest director, Samantha Martinson, joining me along with uh, Professor Herschel Kruger. My thanks to both of you for this conversation about what promises to be an exceptionally powerful and moving theatrical experience uh, for all who come to see it, as as it has been for those participating in this production. And thanks for being part of the morning show today. It was great to talk with you. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much.